Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Lord Jesus, I pray now that you would, as you are so faithful and kind to do, uh, speak to us through your word. Father, you know, it, it was a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't plan on lingering in this chapter, remaining focused on Christ alone for three weeks, but I thank you, Lord, for the last several weeks you have been so kind to open our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray that right now where we are particularly prone to distraction and to be thinking about the people sitting next to us or the room that we're in or all the work that remains before tomorrow morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and arrest and focus our hearts because we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. And Father, where we, we came in today not feeling alive, we walked in with a living body, but inside we very much felt dead and cold and numb to the things of you. I pray that you would feed us by your word. and You would nourish us by your word. Would you give me a mouth to preach your word and strength to proclaim it truthfully, accurately and faithfully. Lord, we, we posture ourselves now not as mere listeners, certainly not as spectators. Thank you that I'm not up here performing. We posture ourselves as those who need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. And I pray that you would speak loud and clear as you are so good at doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you all enjoyed lingering on Christ alone, yeah, wasn't very enthusiastic. <laughs> you can talk back. Have you enjoyed lingering on Christ alone? <laughs> Good. Yeah, I have too. I have too. But in thinking about this particular passage on this particular day, uh, I am mindful of, of this and I, what I just prayed about. Uh, that this is not a time of year where all of us are happy. It's just not. Um, and I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you have felt pressure to be happy, even though you haven't felt happy. Why don't we just have a moment of honesty? Anybody ever been in a situation where you felt pressure to be happy, but you really weren't happy? Yeah, I've been there. I've been there, and I, and I think in this time of year, we can feel that in a particular way. So whether it's family reunions or office parties or small group meetings, the whole Christmas season can feel like that, a situation where there's pressure to be happy. Uh, so we see lights, we see decorations, we see uh, commercials on TV where a picture-perfect wife gives a brand-new Lexus to her picture-perfect husband right? You've seen this. 
while two smiling children watch and cheer from a front porch that appears to have walked out of a restoration hardware catalog. We call out Merry Christmas to one another, but sometimes on the inside it feels more miserable than merry. But since it's the holidays, what do we do? Well, we fake a smile, we pass some cookies, maybe you toss down a a couple drinks, and you hope, you hope that none none of the waves of guilt and failure that are racking your heart come pouring out at the wrong time and ruin the party. What is often called the happy holidays hits right at the point in the year when many of us are subconsciously or consciously comparing what we hoped would happen with what actually happened. What we wished we did in the last year with what we actually did or who we wish we were, but no, we're not. And to whatever degree that's you, friend, and on one level I think all of us can relate, hear this, hear this. Jesus has something to say about your sense of guilt and failure. He has something to say about your sense of guilt and failure, about the things you've done wrong in the past and the things you can't ever seem to do right in the present, both of which will rob your joy and ultimately destroy your soul. What does he have to say? Well, he has to say this. He became a man like us, to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He became a man like us to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And two of those things are in view in this passage. First, Jesus removes the guilt of our sin. And second, Jesus is able to help us resist the temptation to sin. That's the message of Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Jesus came Became a man like us to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. So here's what that means. Here's what that means. When we celebrate the birth of Christ tomorrow, we're not celebrating a holiday designed for successful people who have their act together. We're not. We're remembering and praising God for the moment of time when he came down to work salvation for those who don't have their act together. In order to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, he had to do something. Look at verse 17, Hebrews chapter 2. He had to what? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. You think about that. No one in this room chose to be a human being. You didn't. Maybe some of you are thinking, if I had a choice, I don't know if I would have picked that. I would have gone with something else. But you didn't choose that. You've always existed as a human being. But, but Jesus' experience was different. He became a man. He didn't hide himself in a man. <laughs> he didn't take over or occupy an existing man, the eternally begotten Son of God, became a man. He took to himself a a human nature, including a physical body. And And in that physical body, he experienced 
all the limitations and all the challenges of life in a fallen world, in our world. Now, why do I say our world is fallen? Maybe you've never heard that before, fallen world. Why I say that because life in this world isn't what it was meant to be. I hope I don't have to persuade you of that. It's it's not what it was meant to be. Our life wasn't created to be corrupted by guilt and plagued by failure. All the sad things in our world, every sad thing in your life, quite frankly, is ultimately a result of our sin, of the choice that we made to rebel against the authority of our creator, to shake our fist at him instead of submitting to the authority of our creator. And it's precisely that world, a fallen world, our world, that God himself entered in a lowly stable in Bethlehem. So think about this. That means that for 33 years, Jesus experienced hunger and thirst and betrayal, the loss of a loved one, the crushing weight of popularity, the sting of selfishness, jealousy, pride, eviction, racism, threats against his life, Torture, injustice, slander, shame, derision, and death in the cruelest fashion imaginable. If you can name a hard, painful experience in this life, your life, Jesus experienced it. The circumstances may not be exact, but the categories are the same. When he, when he left the glory of heaven, It wasn't an upgrade for him. It wasn't an upgrade. It was the greatest act of humility that the world has ever seen. The son of God became a son of man. And he never sinned. It's really important. But he experienced the full weight of grief and sorrow and pain that come with trying to do life in a fallen world. And in fact, I would argue that that it was infinitely more sorrowful and more painful for him than it is for us. Two reasons. One, because this life was not all he had ever known. Right? And second, because of the infinite difference between the glory of heaven that he knew as the son of God and the poverty of earth that he experienced when he became a son of man. It wasn't all he'd ever known, unlike us. And the difference between what he had known and this was infinite. And that tells us something, friends. That tells us something that that I think we are, sadly, really quick to deny in the midst of our guilt about the past and our sense of failure about the present. And that's this. Listen to me. God understands the sorrow of your sin. He understands it. What do we tend to think when we're battling guilt from the past or failure in the present, when we're confronted by the crushing weight of life in a fallen world? What do we we tend to think? Well, we tend to think that no one understands. My spouse doesn't get it. My friends don't get it. My parents certainly don't get it. 
And as a result, I am entirely alone. That's what we tend to think. Friend, that's, that's simply not the truth. God understands. The God who created you understands. Listen to Isaiah 53.3. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of perpetual happiness. No. No. A man of what? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Think about that. Look at that. He was familiar with grief. He knew grief. He was no stranger to pain and grief. And here's what that means. You don't have to play games with God. You can't play games with God. He knows, okay? He knows what you've done. He knows what you've experienced. Why? Because he lived among us. He walked among us. And thus, the one thing you cannot do with Jesus, indeed, the one thing you must not do with Jesus, is hold him at arm's length, pretending that God doesn't understand. You can't do that. He does. He understands the pain of life in a fallen world. He's intimately familiar with the sorrow of our sin more than any other human being before him or after him. He understands the sorrow of our sin. But he didn't just come to empathize with us, friends. He became like us so he could do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. I mentioned there are two of them in these verses, so I'll draw your attention to the first one, and that's this. Verse 17, Christ alone removes the guilt of our sin. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that. Do you know what that means? Christmas has a purpose. <laughs> Christmas has a point. There's a goal. There's an end in God's mind in coming into this fallen world that goes beyond, hey, you're not alone. I get your pain. Now, that's good. That's critical. That's comforting. But that's not the end. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That was end number one. That was goal number one. And, and I think this is one of those places where the original Jewish recipients of the book of Hebrews had an advantage over us. They knew exactly what a high priest was. I, I, I've never met a high priest in all my soon-to-be 34 years. Never, never met a high priest. We don't know what that is. We, we hear priests and we think a religious figure who, who gives homilies or offers sacrifice at the mass or listens to confessions, but, but that's not what the recipients of this book would have heard or thought of. Hebrews 5.1 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay, that's a really helpful definition. That's not my definition. That's that's definition from the book of Hebrews. Okay? When it, when it comes to the relationship between 
God and man, a high priest is someone that God appoints in that relationship to do two things. One, they have a representative function. So they they act on our behalf. And two, they have a sacrificial function. So they offer sacrifices for sins. Now, I I also think that in addition to high priests, the whole idea of a sacrifice for sins, if if you lived in, you know, any part of 21st century America, can, can just sound archaic. I mean, like something pulled out of a random tribe in the jungle in the National Geographic, a sacrifice for sins. What's up with that? Well, that wasn't strange to the folks who got this letter either. They knew what that was about because they were familiar with the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament, the first part of our Bibles, teaches us anything, it teaches us this, friends. Sin, every violation of the law of God, is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. God isn't a good old boy. He's not a grandpa. He's not the man upstairs. He's a righteous judge. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Square that with hates the sin but loves the sinner. You hate all evildoers. It's personal. You destroy those who speak lies and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's the word of God. And it reminds us that that every one of us is an evildoer. Every one of us has sinned. And the very justice of God himself obligates him to punish our sin. Why does it do that? Because his justice is a perfect expression of his moral righteousness, the perfection of his nature. And that's why one of the most important days in the Jewish religious calendar was the Day of Atonement. So once a year, what's the Day of Atonement? Once a year, and only once a year, God instructed the high priest... (laughs) descendant of Aaron, to Leviticus 16.34, make atonement for the people of Israel because of all their sins. So listen to what the high priest had to do. Listen to this. First, the high priest clothed himself in garments of white linen. And then he sacrificed the bull for his own sin, the sin of his household, and then he carried a, a censer of burning coals from the altar into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the temple, and he made an offering of fragrant incense. And as the incense filled the Holy of Holies, he he would take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it over the Ark of the Covenant and in front of the Ark seven times. And then he would take a goat and kill it for the sins of the people and bring its blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it over the ark and in front of the ark seven times. Well, what's with the sprinkling of blood of bulls and goats? It was a symbol of something. It symbolized the cleansing of the high priest 
and the cleansing of the people he represented. And when all that was completed, the Lord commanded the high priest to do this. Listen, Leviticus 16, 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Okay, that entire ritual fulfilled both the representative and sacrificial functions of a high priest. An animal died so that neither the priest nor the people he represented would have to die. And as a result of that, God removed the guilt of their sin. But there was only one problem, and it was a massive problem. That atonement, that sacrifice, was not permanent. Why do I say that? Well, because as soon as the Day of Atonement passed, you know what that high priest in Israel got right back to doing? Sinning. And they had to wait an entire year before the guilt of the sin they committed the day after the Day of Atonement could be cleansed. They spent their entire life knowing that their guilt and their sin was not fully yet dealt with. But that was by design. That was by design because both the the Day of Atonement and the, the high priest that represented the people and offered the sacrifices were intended by God to point forward to an immeasurably greater day and an infinitely better high priest. Listen to Hebrews 7 verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of priest? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know what? That sounds like nobody you ever read in the Old Testament. And it's not. It's not. Who is this high priest? He's one who has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered, that's who we're talking about, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, over and over again, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with a blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen is right. (laughs) Friend, there, there is only one thing 
that can wash away your sin. There's only one sacrifice that can atone for the guilt of your iniquity. And that's the sacrifice that God himself made when he hung on the cross for you. And there he made, look back at verse 17, propitiation for your sin. That's a really big word. (laughs) But it simply means this, okay? When Jesus died, he completely satisfied the righteous wrath of God on us because of our sin. That's what it means. He bore our guilt. He carried our sorrows. He he offered Jesus up his perfect life as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin. And here's what that means. He didn't die merely because the Romans crucified him. He didn't die simply because the Jews betrayed him. You know why he died? He died because the Father crushed him. That's why he died. And in that moment, Psalm 5, 6 was fulfilled. The father destroyed his son. The father abhorred his son. He poured out every last drop of holy wrath on his son. Why? So that we could be forgiven for all our sin. That's why. You can't remove your guilt by feeling sorry for yourself or by doing enough good deeds in the next half of your life. You can't cleanse yourself in the eyes of a holy God. You can't make right what your sin has made wrong. Only Jesus can remove the guilt of your sin because only Jesus has made a sacrifice of sufficient worth to completely atone for your sin. And it's that death, that sacrifice that that qualifies Jesus to be a high priest on your behalf. So here's what this means, friend. Where you are unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. Where you fail to obey God's law, Jesus has perfectly obeyed God's law. And because his obedience was perfect, his sacrifice is perfect. He's, He's able to remove, as a result, the guilt of your sin. But you have to do something. You know what that is? It's not remove your guilt. You have to stop trusting yourself to save you. And your good works and your sorrow and your I'll do better next times to save you. You have to start trusting Jesus to save you. And if you'll do that, friend, if you'll do that right now, then God reviews the entire list of ways that you have failed in 2017. All all the sins of omission, all the sins of commission, and he makes this declaration over you as an expression of his mercy to you in Jesus Christ. My son, my daughter, you are completely forgiven. You're completely forgiven, and no more guilt remains, therefore no more wrath remains. Think about it this way, church. There are no high priest wanted signs in the kingdom of God. He's not looking for one. He's not advertising. We need a high priest to make propitiation for our sins. And Jesus is that high priest because his sacrifice is wholly sufficient. So here's how we need to respond to that, okay? Stop trying to take back on yourself what Christ Jesus has already taken away from you. Whenever we try to atone 
for our own iniquity, by, by getting angry at ourselves or promising we'll do better next time. Here's what we're essentially saying, okay? I know Jesus took my guilt and exhausted the wrath of God against my sin, but I think he missed the spot. He didn't turn me around and see that. He, he didn't know I would commit that sin or make that mistake. I, I think he needs a little help like an assistant high priest in the high priest department. We think like that whenever we walk around trying to atone for our own guilt. And brother and sister, to whatever degree that is your temptation, if you have turned away from your sin and trusted in Christ, hear these words from the famous hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That's his declaration over you. Christ alone removes the guilt of your sin. But that's not the only thing he came to do. There's a second thing that he does for us by becoming a man like us, and that's found in verse 18. Look there with me. Christ alone removes the guilt of our sin. Second, Christ alone helps us resist the temptation to sin. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, this is such good news, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Anybody want to admit you were tempted to sin this week? Yeah. You know what the word of God says to you? that Christ Jesus is able to help you in those moments. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. Because he himself has suffered when tempted. And if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 4, that's the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness prior to the beginning of his ministry. And it, it has all these echoes of Genesis 3, it's really a repeat of Adam and Eve's experience in the Garden of Eden. Except this time, the stakes are a lot higher. <laughs> and Satan comes to Jesus after 40 days and nights of, of fasting. And in summary, Matthew 4, 2 simply says this, he was hungry. <laughs> and I read that and I think, no joke. I mean, more like he was at the end, the literal end of his human physical ability to endure. And that's when his temptation started. And Satan tempts him to violate the word of God with three different offers. Pleasure, fame, and power. And the final offer, power, was particularly Devious because it offered Jesus a kingdom without a cross and authority over all the kingdoms of the world without any suffering. And Satan said to him, Matthew 4 9, All these, the kingdoms and glory of the entire world, I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That's all you got to do. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. 
And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And that wasn't the only time Jesus was tempted to sin. From the day he was born till the day he died, he faced the exact same temptations that we do. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Now, there's an objection to this that I hear in my own mind. And I want to share it with you. And the objection goes like this. Good for you, Jesus. But come on. I mean, you're the son of God. You're like Superman. What takes me years to overcome with like two steps forward and one step back was a piece of cake for you because you're Superman. So if you didn't have to struggle like I do, why should I trust you that you really get what I'm going through right now? Thought that before? How can you help me when I'm tempted to sin unless you face temptation with the same resources that I have at my disposal? I think two things have to be said in response to that objection. First, please hear this. The fact that Jesus never gave in to temptation to sin means he is more familiar with the full force of its power, not less. Hear that again. The fact that Jesus never caved, he never gave in to temptation to sin, means he is more familiar with the full force of its power, not less. Think about that. How do we typically resist temptation to sin? Okay? Well, sometimes it's what I call no contest. No contest. So, you're tempted to get angry at the kids, and you just immediately start yelling at them. No contest. It's, it's not even like you're tempted. It's like, opportunity to sin, boom, I'll take that. But, but there are other times that we recognize the temptation, and we resist for a little while. Maybe it's been a long day at the office, or another month without a potential spouse on the horizon. And you think to yourself, it would feel really good to look at some porn or read a racy novel right now. And you know it's wrong. And you remember the friends that prayed for you two weeks ago that you would honor God with your life. So you decide, I'm not going to. But you know what happens with every passing minute after you say that? It gets harder. Right? Temptation gets harder. The, the longer you resist, the harder it becomes to keep saying no. So maybe you hang on for an hour or two hours, but then at 11.45 at night, you decide, I can't take it anymore, and you give in. We, we, we tend to think that because Jesus never caved, he doesn't know what temptation feels like. 
But friend, the exact opposite is true. Exact opposite. Because he never caved, he experienced the full force of its power. Hear that. And that means he's more familiar with the temptations we face, not less. That's the first thing that has to be said to this. Well, you're Superman, so it doesn't really count. You can't really get me or help me. He's more familiar than you are because he never caved. Second, remember, Jesus wasn't Superman. <laughs> wasn't. Maybe you think of him like that. You know, you see him in pictures or on church wall, and he's, ah. you know, he just looks like Superman. He wasn't a mixture of human and divine natures. He was one person with two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So there were times that he acted in and through his divine nature, like when he calmed the storm or was transfigured before his disciples. But you know what? More often than not, he acted in and through his human nature. And you know what that means? That means that as a man, Jesus Christ had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit not one bit less than you do. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That wasn't like a band-aid, or I'm just going to sort of paint that so people feel like they can approach it. No, he anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about, as a result, doing good things and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Why was God with him? As he acted in and through his human nature, because God had filled him with the Spirit. And in fact, the Gospel of Matthew is very careful to inform us that Jesus faced that crazy temptation in the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So bottom line, when Jesus suffered, when he was tempted, his suffering, his temptation was just as much and even more than what we know. Because he never sinned, he's, he's more familiar with temptation's power, not less. And he didn't resist as Superman. He resisted in the power of the Spirit. And that means, look back at verse 18, the second half, he's able to do something for you, friend. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So think about this. Illustration. <laughs> who would you trust more to fix your car? Somebody who has read the entire shelf of auto repair books in the library and knows all the theory. Or somebody who has spent the last 30 years of their life with greasy hands under the hood of every vehicle under the sun. Who would you trust more? Number two, that's right. Not, not the theory guy. I mean, that's great. But somebody with personal experience. We, we don't want theoretical knowledge. We want functional knowledge. And that's exactly who Jesus is. In his experience of temptation, he has an intimate experiential familiarity with every temptation to sin. So as I said earlier, the circumstances may look different, but the categories are the same. So pleasure, fame, power, if you name the temptation, Jesus experienced it. And you know what that means, friend? There's nothing theoretical or generic about the help he holds out to you. It's not like, oh, well, I never really experienced that, but that looks unfortunate. Um, try this. <laughs> Oh, wait, uh, uh, not working. Try this. 
Getting help from Christ Jesus is not like going to a doctor who doesn't get the problem. He knows. He's intimately familiar. And his help is the overflow of his personal experience. He walked the path of suffering under temptation. And he has the scars to prove it. So let me conclude with this. How exactly does he help us? And that's the question, right? If he can remove the guilt of our sin, and he offers hope and help to resist temptation for sin, how in the world does that happen? I mean, maybe you've had somebody pray for you at one point in your life. Dear God, I pray that that you would help this person resist temptation to sin. And you're like, thank you, that's really kind of you. And then you're walking away thinking, I don't have a clue how that's going to go down. Never filled out before. Why should I feel? I mean, what am I looking for? How are you going to like zap me? I mean, how's this going to work? Sometimes we know we need help. We believe Jesus is able to help, but we don't have a clue how he'll get it done. Well, verse 17 doesn't give us a lot of detail. But the rest of this entire book, and pretty much the rest of the entire Bible, gives us all we need. And I could stand up for your, here for hours and give examples of the help Jesus gives, but let me mention three of them, okay? First, Jesus helps us resist temptation through the Word of God. The Word of God, especially the Word of the Gospel. So that's why Paul commands us in Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Where Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. So in a major way, it's through the living and abiding word of God that Jesus helps us discern what is true and good and right from what is false and evil and wrong. Here's a second way. Jesus helps us resist temptation through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Insert reflection. That's really, 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 really hard. Well, Jesus knows. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Friend, it, more than any other means, it's, it's through the spirit of God that Jesus empowers you to say no to sin and yes to godliness. That's why Paul could exhort the Galatians in, in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So word of God, spirit of God. Lastly, Jesus helps us resist temptation through the people of God. If you didn't see that one coming, Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Translation, when you neglect the church of Jesus Christ, when you stay away from Christian people and Christian community, you are denying yourself one of the chief means of grace that King Jesus wants to use to help you in the fight. 
That's like the definition of foolishness. And that is exceedingly dangerous in a culture that would say, your relationship with God, oh, that's just a, that's a you and God thing. That's a you and God thing. You know, and, and, and if the people of God are going, eh, I don't know about that. I'm down with Jesus. I don't know about the church. <laughs> you can't be united by faith to the Son of God and not be united by the same faith to the people of God. You can't. It's a package deal. And it's through sharing our temptations with one another that, that we receive biblical perspective and encouragement and, and support in the battle. So he helps us through his word. He helps us through his spirit. He helps us through his people. He became a man like us, church, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Christ alone removes our guilt, and Christ alone helps us resist the temptation to sin. And whenever you're tempted to think, how is he qualified to do those things? It's for this reason, because he's intimately familiar with the pain and sorrow of your sin. So my Christmas Eve plea to you is this. Because Jesus Christ became a man like you to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, stop hiding your guilt. Don't bury your failures. Bring them to Jesus because he's merciful. He's faithful. He's eager to do for us, church, what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is why our faith must be in him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that you are in your person and work everything that we need. And I pray, Father, that as you've reminded us through your word today, that you are a merciful and faithful high priest. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us turn away from trying to deal by ourselves with our sense of guilt and our failures and bring it all to you. And that you would remove the guilt of our sin as you give us faith to trust you. And you would, through your word, through your spirit, through your people, help us resist temptation to sin. Jesus, I thank you that you are the best possible person to help and that you get it. And I pray that as we remember your birth tomorrow and sing these songs to you today, that our hearts would be exceedingly grateful that we are not alone in the fight, but that you've come to do for us what we can't do for ourselves.